Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia Freaker, a senior content producer and editor of the Booktopian blog. And with me today is Sarah McDooling, our Kids in YA category manager. And our guest today is the one and only Jay Kristoff, here to talk about the last book in his lifelike trilogy, trilogy, True Life. Welcome, Jay. Hey, how are you going? Good to be back. It's so good to have you. I feel like I was only here five minutes ago. I, I, I think I actually was here like last month. So I, I feel hopefully... like it's just a recurring chain of like we interview you, then we interview Amy, and then we interview both of you, and then it's you and Amy again. And yeah, yeah that's how you do. You write too many write books. This many books. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's my fault. I'm bringing this on myself. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. It's, it's great a very problem. good problem to have <laughs> because True Life has just come out. Um, it has. Yeah, we both loved it. Oh, oh good. So I'm much. Glad. So much may have cried a couple of times and there were a few near misses for certain people that I was like you can't do that oh really yeah okay. <laughs> I, I, I am always interested to know what parts people got upset about oh are we well, allowed I, to talk? I mean it's out in the world now I feel like maybe we have a spoilery section in the second yeah half, that's probably and then that's probably start. a good idea okay. yeah yeah all right yeah. cool yeah because like you you get quite close to it yourself mm. uh, as the author so it's always interesting to know which parts resonate with other people yeah. So if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book yet, we will give you a heads up when it's going to get spoilery. But for now, we'll try and stay spoiler free. Yes? Yeah, yeah. sure. Cool. Sounds good. Um, so I guess let's just start with how does it feel now that you've wrapped up this epic trilogy? Uh, it's always a little bit bittersweet, um, which sounds a little bit cheesy. But, you know, you live with a group of characters for kind of three or four years. Uh, you grow quite attached to them, so saying goodbye to them can kind of feel like you're saying goodbye to an old friend. It's weird because the characters are imaginary. They only exist in your head, but after living with them for three or four years, they be- they become proper little people. So knowing that you're you're never going to write them again in all likelihood is, is sometimes a little bit sad, but I, I try and comfort myself with the idea that I think I gave them the send-off they deserved uh, and you know, you just feel proud of it. Trilogy is a, a big thing, and writing this uh, series was, you know, it, it it's been a really amazing time in my life, um, and this series will always be part of it. So yeah, I I am happy but sad, as weird as that sounds. That's such an interesting point because as readers, we can reread it, like we. Mm we can go back and read it. I don't know. Do authors do that? Like if you. Uh, I don't. (laughs) I don't. I feel like I never read. The last time I will read any of my books um, is on. I have a little ritual where I read the book. I tend to read it the day before because I'm a slow reader. So I'll read it the day before and the day of publication. And then I kind of put it away in my head and I never, ever go back to it ever again. Um, Wow. Uh, if, if, I am, if I'm writing a trilogy and I need to refer back to, you know, an event or a fact or a situation, then I'll go back and read a chunk of it. But um, I never read the book in its entirety after it comes out. I feel like I, I'm giving it to the world at that point. I'm giving it to the readers. It's not mine anymore. I'm, it's like kind of sending your kid off to university or whatever. It's out of your hands. So Yeah, but... If when you send your kid to university, you'll presumably see them again. I'm just struck by this idea of what a final goodbye it is for the author. Cause, mm. Yeah, it, it, can, it can feel quite sad, um, particularly if it's a series that you've been working on over the course of years. Um, 
and like I say, my, my life has changed a great deal in the last kind of four or five years. I've become a full-time author and got to travel the world and it's all because of books like this. So every one of them has a particular resonance and, and importance. It's kind of, it's kind of like closing off a chapter of your life almost. Um, so yeah, it, it can be, it can be sad knowing that you're never going to see them again. So you hopefully leave them in a good place and, and kind of turn around and walk on to the next thing. Well, you you mentioned hoping that you'd given them a proper send off, and I would just like to say you definitely have here. Oh, good, um, good. glad to hear. And book threes, book threes are always hard. Like endings are, are quite hard to stick sometimes. So it's yeah, it's gratifying yeah. to hear that that when you pull it off. I wanted to ask about that. You have in in other podcasts about um, I think about the Aurora series. We spoke to you about the fine balance of a trilogy and, um, and you know, the, the way to pull that off. But when you get to the end of a trilogy like this one and it feels so perfectly done, I can't help thinking, like, how much of the ending is in your head when you start that first book because when it falls together so well, like, it, I can't believe that you didn't have the whole story, like the entire trilogy in your head when you started or did you? That's my question. I mean, <laughs> it, it depends what kind of theory you subscribe to. I mean, it all comes out of my head, so obviously it was in there somewhere. But in terms of being fully formed um, and crystal clear, no, it's absolutely not. You you might have the vaguest idea. Um, like I, I knew I knew the theme that I was going to be exploring through the trilogy. At the heart of the trilogy is the friendship between Eve and Lemon, um, and how that changes as they change as people. So I knew ultimately the story would end with a confrontation between those two. But when I was writing book one, I had no idea where those characters were going to be. I, ha I had a rough idea in terms of Eve's arc. I knew I was going to turn her into a villain. Um, and ultimately her story would be one about, you know, fall and rise. Uh, you know, ultimately I wanted it to be a redemptive arc, but I didn't really know what I was going to do with Lemon other than, conceptually she was a sidekick who was kind of thrust into a hero role she was a character who never expected to have the spotlight on her she doesn't really know what to do with it when she finds herself in it but in terms of how that would play out and and the geography and the choreography of it all i had i had absolutely no idea you you kind of discover those or i as a writer discover those things as i tell the story so i have a vague idea that it will result in some kind of conflict. But other than that, no, I'm not, I'm not clever enough to plan three books out. I wish I was, but that's I did not talk that fast. Wow, that's so like magic. Because I, everyone that I've talked to this book about, like, I think Deviate is one of my favourite, like, second in a trilogy books ever. And it just yeah, seems too. like it, everyone, every character was exactly where they needed to be, not only in terms of their own personal growth and development as a character, but also in terms of furthering the plot. <laughs> yeah, like everything just was so seemed so perfectly plotted out that I was like, surely he had this big billboard and was like moving them across. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Charlie from Under White Sunny. Yeah, too. pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, no, I mean, in, in terms... <laughs> It's kind of like making the sausage. You don't really want to know what goes into it. You just want to see the sausage at the end. Like in terms of trial and error, I, because I am a pantser by nature, I make things up as I go. I tend to spend a lot of time uh, wandering down dead ends and realizing things don't work. So 
because I, mm. I write quite quickly in terms of word count, I can afford that. In I can afford to waste ten thousand words pursuing a storyline that doesn't end up get making it onto the page. And and, and I hesitate to use the word waste because it's not wasted. You're you're still, you know, learning mm. something about a character or a situation or a motivation that you otherwise wouldn't have explored. But it doesn't actually make it past the editing process. But yeah, mm. I I I tend to find the story by writing the story. So I'm glad it all looks seamless in the end because it's certainly not seamless <laughs> in the production. Like oh, it I, definitely does. <laughs> I, you should talk, talk to my wife sometimes about what I'm like to be around when things aren't going well. I'm just like in this puddle of misery on the lounge room floor every day. So I'm, I'm glad it all looks seamless in the end. The effect <laughs> is just masterful and mm. it really does feel like you – like when you get to the end of that and you just think about the whole journey of all three books, it just feels um, as though it, it must have been completely carefully plotted from all right. first well, let, to let's, last. Let's, let's go with that theory. <laughs> let's tell everyone I'm extremely clever and no one listened to this podcast. Let's just pretend I know what I was doing all along. It's oh, kind, yeah, we'll of, kind it. of funny that you bring up the second book thing because popular wisdom is that second books are the most difficult in a trilogy to write because you're not actually reaching any real resolution. You have to build up a climax and have a satisfying conclusion without ultimately concluding the plot because there's obviously got to be a book three or a movie three. Mm. But strangely enough, I find book twos in my trilogies, almost universally my book twos are the strongest out of a lot of them. Like I think Aurora Burning is a cooler book than Rising. I think God's Grave is a better book than Nevernight. I think Gemina is a better book than Illuminate. I don't know wow. why, but I think like second books to me are when you invert the premise of the story where characters find out that the world isn't what they thought it was or they are not who they thought they were or their friends are their enemies, their enemies are their friends. Like that inversion and subversion of the structures I, I for some reason find really compelling. Um, and I like yeah. being on cliffhangers as well. And book two is a oh, really Oh, yeah. Good we know that. It's fun to revisit <laughs> as well because that's the moment in the overall story of the entire trilogy that's the part where things are most unsettled and like yeah. you know it's always fun to like relive the the triumphant ending or to like go back to the beginning but that middle part that's where it, that's the juicy part yeah that's that's the part <laughs> I enjoy writing the most where I, I, I like the you know the all hope is gone moment the dark moment before the dawn moment and that you know in terms of a trilogy cycle book two is where that happens you know it's, it's where you put the characters in a situation where hopefully the reader can't see a way out of it or you fundamentally challenge something that the character has taken for granted and it, and it completely changes them as a person but that that i'm not sure what it is about me as a person or, or what it says about me uh, but i enjoy putting the character and <laughs> and the environment through that ringer and seeing what comes out the other end. And like I say, sometimes I don't know what's going to happen. I kind of throw these characters into a situation and hopefully they become so realized in my head that they kind of act of their own volition, which sounds like something a crazy person would say. But <laughs> what, one, once a character is real enough to you, they start to react in ways that sometimes you don't anticipate. And that leads the story into really interesting directions that you didn't foresee. So, yeah, book two is a fun for me for some reason. I don't know why. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, kind of want to get back to something you said about, like, particularly Lemon, because I think she is my favourite character in, like, yeah, the whole too. series. Oh, I love her so much. And uh, when you talked about her being a side, going from a sidekick to a main character, 
And then yeah. she has one hell of a ride in this book as well, because she kind of ends on that really downbeat. Like, the ending of DV8 is kind of devastating for her. And she's yeah. at the lowest point. And then it gets a little bit darker for her in this series. And Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, some, some of the themes that I'm exploring, uh, are, they go to pretty dark places. I mean, the, the world that I have built here is... is the, the worst resolution of some of the paths I see us traveling down as a society, um, you know, mm. in terms of nuclear prol- proliferation, good God, I can't even say the word, uh, <laughs> and the biological experimentation. Um, so, yeah, Lemon does go to some pretty nasty places with some pretty nasty people. Mm. Uh, but, you know, like I say, she's a character who didn't really ever expect to be in that situation or have that spotlight shone upon her. So kind of taking that reluctant hero trope and applying it to her as a character was really fun. Um, because, yeah. Some, yeah, she reacted in ways that I totally didn't expect her to because, like I say, it sounds like something a lunatic says, but, you know, <laughs> the characters become so real to you that sometimes you want them to go in a particular direction because that's the way you planned the story and, and they simply refuse. It doesn't ring true. Mm. Uh, and you find them doing things of, almost of their own accord. So, yeah, she, she was a really cool pattern to explore some of those themes. Like, I don't want to come off as heavy-handed or, or an author on a soapbox, but, yeah, I was, I was exploring some of the technological issues that I see us, you know, the proliferation of artificial intelligence is a, is a topic that I'm reasonably well-read on and reasonably worried about. Um, so that mm. was themes that I was exploring here. Um. There's so there's so many themes here though. I really enjoyed in this one, and because we're still in the spoiler-free section, yeah, um, I'll I'll tread lightly. But I loved the way in which in this last book, particularly, you uh, explored the idea of if it's possible to have free will to not have free will. Does that make sense? I was just about to like <laughs> yeah. bring that up because I think it's such an interesting theme in these books that you don't really think about because the, the robots are kind of like, oh, yeah, they're sidekicks. But then they actually become characters that you become so, like, involved with and you see their thought processes and how they struggle against, like, these three laws of robotics, essentially. Um, yeah, that was one of the fun things I had with Cricket as a character and, and uh, Solon, who is kind, yeah. of, kind of like a devil's mm. advocate, I guess, like playing in the grey lines between those three laws um, because for a long time they were kind of, even in real life, in real life robotic technology research and development, those three laws that Asimov laid down were seen as, if not laws, then at least guiding principles by which robotics would be explored. But, you know, when you, when you, start, to cut, when you start to, I guess, game those rule sets, you can actually, you can do a lot while still adhering to the letter of the law, if not the spirit of the law. So Solomon was kind of a, a device by which cricket could uh, extend the boundaries of his free will while still not breaking the parameters under which he was coded. Um, yeah, so that that was a lot of fun to kind of play around with. Cricket was a fun character to write. Um, oh, I, lo- kind of I love te- Cricket testing, so much. Testing the limits of humanity while working within those kind of hard-coded paradigms. Um, mm. Yeah, he, he's probably my second fave character. Me too. <laughs> and it's part of the joy of this series that the the characters on the side or the ones that you might initially overlook um, 
really do take centre stage. And yeah, I mean, I, the way no, but I, I mean, that, that kind of goes back to what I was saying. I had no idea what was going to happen to cricket. Like if, when, if you had had a conversation with me when I was writing book one and told me where cricket was going to end up as a character, that would have, it would have surprised me just as much as it hopefully surprises <laughs> the readers. Like he became something totally different than what I initially imagined him to be. Um, but that, I mean, that, that, to me is the sign that I'm doing something right when these characters start doing things that even surprise me as an author odds are good they're going to surprise the reader but it, it also means I'm kind of pushing myself as far as the characters and the stories themselves when they start doing things unexpected or ending up in places where I never imagined them to be initially it maybe feels like I'm the trick of it. like maybe that's how you're able to do what we perceive as this magical like what comes off in the end as seeming like just pitch perfect plotting is um this the trick of it is not knowing yourself and and so you that like um joy and surprise of discovery and like everything that happens to you while you're writing it just is infused in the story yeah I mean I, I know writer friends of mine who are who are definite planners they plan out everything meticulously before they begin and they're absolutely horrified when I describe my process <laughs> to them. You know, the idea of writing 10,000 words and then just throwing them in the bin, uh, you know, wandering down a, and a road that ends up being a cul-de-sac. You know, um, that, I mean, A, I have the luxury of time to do that because I write quickly and I get to do this full time. But also just, just in terms of the energy that gets spent and then doesn't get realized on the page is horrifying to some of my more planner-based writer buddies but you know everyone's process is different as long as you as long as you wind up with a good book that you're proud of at the end of the day however you got there is is the method that works for you and obviously i have to we have to be a little more careful in terms of planning when we're doing our co-authored stuff with amy um, because obviously you, you you have to talk to your co-author about what you have planned because they might have something completely different in mind but yeah that's one of the the joys of writing solo you have a little more freedom in that respect to kind of find the story in the process of telling it but it's not it's not for everyone like i i have thrown out mountains of of words over the course of of writing all the books i think i think on god's grave oh no i think on never night i threw out like ninety thousand words oh my god, oh my god. That's like a whole which book. is it's like a whole book yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's phenomenal what happened so to it I mean, it it goes into a folder, and some some of the ideas get poached in later, in later books in the series, or they get poached for later novel ideas in completely different wow. series. And sometimes, you know, the act of exploring that character in a situation just informs you as an author, and so you know that character better. Maybe that's part of them becoming so real and realized in my head because I spend so much time kind of just throwing them into situations and seeing how they react, kind of spitballing with them that, that they become oh. very real and I know them very well. Um, mm. But yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a process for everybody. And some of my uh, more meticulous planner friends are absolutely horrified by the notion. So, but like I say, whatever, whatever works for you works. Everyone is different and everyone's process is different. As long as you finish the book at the end of it, then you did a good thing. From a reader's perspective, I'm delighted because I just want to read it all, even though I know mm. that, that's, that it's not that it's not even, even though you like, know I'm not as smart as I as you think I am. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'd say the opposite. 
I would definitely say if you are, are able to write 90,000 words and then it's all background info, that's like <laughs> amazing level of um, world building and like character building. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I say, I hope, hopefully that's part of what makes the characters real. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of, I, I guess, it's thought experiments in a way, You're throwing them into a situation and seeing how they react. Even if you don't use that situation, you have a better understanding of who they are as people. Um, and that, mm. you know, in the scenes that you do include, that, that makes the reactions that they have and the lines that they take feel more genuine, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, one- shall we get into more spoilery territory now? <laughs> Because okay. the, the, so, I feel like Sarah and I are biting our tongues I know, <laughs> on a couple I of things. Many things I want to say sure. that are definitely spoilery. So this is it, the big, like, ding, ding, ding alert that if yeah. you do not want to hear out what happens in true life, just stop listening right now. Are you, do you, if you get that warning, do you actually turn off the podcast or, or the... No, because I love spoilers. Like, yeah, I know. You're one of those weird persons. You just you want to know what happens before it happens. It depends yeah, on how invested like... in the story I am for me. Like, yeah, I if I don't really care about it, I'll just be know. like, okay, what happens? Yeah. But, I just like... don't care if I know. <laughs> do you do you skip to the end of the book? Like when you pick up the book, do you go and read the last page before you read the first? <laughs> no, no. Only, if, only <laughs> the only time I would do that. I'm not saying I've never done it. <laughs> the only time I would do it is if I'm struggling with a book and I just don't. There are too many books, right? So mm. if I've oh, gotten right, halfway okay. through and I'm like, I'm not sure about this. Like if I've given it 200 or 300 pages of my time and I'm still not into it, then sometimes I will skip to the end just to see if I. If the ending of Lee's like, wow, how do they get there? Then I'll keep reading. Right. So you give a book two or 300 pages. Wow. That's, I've got a hair trigger. Like, if you haven't got me by 50 pages, you're done. I'm, I'd bounce out. There's too many books. It yeah. depends on the book. Some books are only 300 pages. So if it's, yeah, a, if it's usually about the halfway point or at least a third of the way through, if I'm like actively not into it, like if I'm really bored and just not feeling it. Yeah, that, that might be a time that I skip to the end just to to give myself a little sneak peek, and then often that does compel you to read because often you'll be like, "How on earth do these you get from A to B that are boring me to tears end up there?" And so then you you keep reading, or you just put it down and move on to the next book. Yeah, yep. Life mm. is short for bad books. Yeah, <laughs> I'm also a very slow reader, so. Um, and I just I don't know knowing what happens in a book only really often makes me curious to experience it it never ruins it for me and I can't I get fascinated by how like phobic people are to know what happens in a story because it's just not a it's just not a thing I really get even even if it's a big twist like a a a huge revelation like but then don't you want to experience it like I if I hear about some huge epic twist I'm like god that sounds amazing I have to read it (laughs) it just doesn't obviously maybe people get upset about being robbed of that initial gut reaction like it can still be an amazing twist and you can appreciate it for what it is but you don't get to experience that visceral like oh my god they did that they they killed that guy or you know Hmm. yeah yeah like when I said it I get it it. yeah I mean, a moment that I was really glad wasn't spoiled to me was in the first book of in Lifelike was when we found out it was actually Lemon that's the deviant, not yeah, right. 
That was a really, I remember going, oh my God, that's such a good twist. And I did not see that coming. And I messaged no, all my friends. They're like, how did you not see that coming? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'm dumb. <laughs> but like, I'm glad I didn't see that twist coming. I was too I don't know, invested do you actually in the believe, story. Like, I, I, I have a couple of those friends who yeah. like, they say, oh, didn't you get it? it? It was obvious all along. I don't actually believe them. Like, I, I think some people pretend to be a little cleverer than they are when it comes <laughs> to twists sometimes. I, yeah, look, I, I, I think to, it's a healthy uh, dose of skepticism. Yeah, me too. <laughs> They're not as smart as us, Sarah. They couldn't be smarter than them. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to believe it. I often feel like if you're fully engaged in a story and really enjoying it, the part of your brain that tries to figure out what's going to happen is distracted. So, oh, me too. I, I yeah. deliberately turn that part of my brain off. But my wife is the exact opposite. Like, she takes pride in being able to guess the twist before the twist happens. Like, and she's a huge like crime buff, crime procedural buff. Uh, and yeah. so she will make a call like five minutes into the show, like it was that guy or it was so and so. And I, I can't even. I can't approach story that way. I want to be surprised and delighted. Like I, I would almost be bummed out if I guessed the, who the killer was or, or who done it mm. before I get told who done it. Maybe it's a but crime yeah. reader thing because I, I read a lot of crime and I, I'm a bit like that myself. Like I don't think I go in trying to figure it out, but if I go in and it's just okay and I'm not like totally lost in the story, that part of my brain wakes up and goes, hey, hey. Where do you think this is going? And right. Then, and then I start having theories. And then the joy of those theories being right to me help adds to the enjoyment. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, that, then that's you get what the surprise. You, that's what you want as an author to have, have laid the clues down so people can feel rewarded and clever if they figure it out, <laughs> but not be so obvious that your average reader can, can figure it out. So people still get hmm. that sense of surprise and delight. Maybe I'm just trying to rationalise the fact that I'm not smart enough to ever figure out who the killer is and, and my wife gets it right, like, 95% of the time. So. I'm that person that will cycle through every person and be like, I bet it's that person. And then by the end, I've gone through every single person. <laughs> so you're like, right, that doesn't count as, as guessing because you've just gone through every person. Isn't the best one, though, the, like, the, I don't know if this is the right expression, but I think it's called, like, the double blind or whatever, where you're, like, they're building up to something and then it's like a twofold surprise. So people are like, I knew it. I was right. And then they get like sidelined by the second half of the surprise. That's my favorite. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, we didn't even talk about spoilers yet. I know. No, we <laughs> probably talk, go back to talking about true Yeah, it's such a big fan yeah, there. Yeah. Well, it's like a it. nice buffer zone for people that, still haven't turned off maybe they're in the bath or yeah, no, they've slipped like, over and no. can't get up you have yep. a second chance people this is your yeah, last and final warning actually it three second begins two in three two one one okay so you mentioned before that it was a bittersweet feeling uh finishing this trilogy but i'd also argue it's a bittersweet ending even though most people apart from kind of dear poor cricket get yeah. a good we ending. have hope Though. We I know, but I'm still upset. <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll be back. He can be re-rebuilt. That's the wonderful thing about being a robot. <laughs> you've, you've yeah, I like his, that you leaned into that loophole. It's like, he can't really die, really. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of raises interesting questions as well. Though, yeah. like, when you rebuild him, is it him? Like, what actually mm. makes him him? Is he yeah. just a collection oh, yeah. of code and circuitry? Or 
you know, is his physicality part of what made him what he was? But yeah, cricket spinoff. I would <laughs> yeah, read it. Cr- cricket solo adventures. Yeah, sure. Mm. <laughs> I would be so into that. Oh yeah, <laughs> but um, Eve is kind of the character that I think, even though she technically does get the happy ending, it's still bittersweet. And you've mentioned that she goes on kind of a redemption arc. And, like, I feel like the idea of a redemption arc is a bit dirty these days. People don't like seeing villains redeemed. They're like, once you've done something I bad, do. you... I do. I'm going to say I do. I know. <laughs> I love redemption arcs. I feel yeah. like that... Um, so it's interesting to see... Cause to see Eve's story. Because by book two, I was like, I don't care about Eve anymore. She is dead to me. She is gone. Um, but you see her more in um, true life. I think I was just bitter. And it's her struggling with this idea that she knows it's wrong in her heart, what she's doing with all the other lifelikes. But it's just that that separation of her own personal anguish and the situation and what she went through from the issues and anger of the lifelikes at large and how yeah, that comes I, to head at the end is I mean, really she's compelling. also confronted with, with the thought that everything that she is feeling, um, kind mm. of from the revelation of who she is, mm. she's she's wondering if it's even her feeling those things at all. Like, is she simply a product of the programming that she, that, that makes her up? Like she's, Mm. she's constantly wrestling with the idea that I am only feeling the things I am feeling because I was made to feel that way. So her coming to grips with the idea that she is a genuine person above and beyond what she was created to be is something that she kind of wrestles with from the end of the first book. Um, but, I mean, I think her reactions are, if even if she's unlikely, <laughs> I, I hopefully made her reactions understandable. You know, if, if you found out that your entire life was a lie, everyone that was close to you had been lying to you, I think your initial mm. reaction would be rage. And that is her reaction in book two. You know, she, she kind of loses herself in the anger of it all. And I book three. so well done. Like, yeah. the her brokenness over having her whole identity like just crumbled to dust. Yeah, and, like, and to find out that everyone around you was lying to you. Like yeah. some people knew and other people were just lying about who they were. But mm-hmm. literally everybody in book one is lying to Eve. And so these these people that she kind of built her world around and this bedrock upon which she laid her foundations, it all gets taken away from her. Mm-hmm. And the only people that offer her any any solution, any way out uh, is Gabriel and her brothers and sisters. So, yeah, hopefully, like I say, even even if she's not likable, at, at least her reaction is sympathetic and understandable. Like putting yourself mm. in, putting myself in her shoes, yeah, I, I would be incredibly angry at the world. So I, I think her wanting to at least lash out initially um, is hopefully understandable. Well, but yeah, yeah her, definitely. Through the worst of her actions, you still have, um, you know, Lemon and Cricket and, like, you sort of want her to get her back for them as much as you want Eve to be okay. Like, you, you worry about her and you want you want her to come good for her, but you also just want it for the other people that you love. Like, mm. um, Yeah, because they love her, yeah. Yes, yeah, um, you just want but to that, that kind different. of comes back, like, the... The bedrock of the series is really the friendship between Eve and Lemon. Like I, when I set out writing the series, I, I wanted to, you know, do a, a Professor X Magneto 
type friendship where you had two people who, you know, grew up together and genuinely care about each other, but ideologically they, they just can't come to an agreement. Um, mm. the, you know, the things they want are fundamentally opposed to each other. And you can understand both points of view. One is obviously a little more sympathetic than the other. Lemon is more traditionally a good guy, I guess. Mm. But hopefully if you put yourself in Eve's shoes, you can understand why she is the way she is and why she does the things that she does. I think that that's what makes a good villain. When mm. you were to have a sit down and have a coffee with that villain, they would be able to ex explain clearly and articulate exactly why they're doing the things that they do and, and believe that they're mm. ultimately doing the right thing. You know, from Eve's point of view, she's fighting for... She's fighting for her own identity, but she's also fighting for the existence of her kind. You know, there's only mm. there's only 13 of them initially, but, you know, they are the only ones of their kind on the planet. Uh, and so wanting, so being protective of these beings who are essentially her only family, um, mm. it's hopefully understandable to the reader, even if, like I say, she does do some pretty awful things. Yeah, and it's that idea that she has no, like, she has a complete lack of agency from the second she finds out she's not who, what she thinks she is. Um, which is something that both Lemon and Eve go through. Like, Lemon gets essentially experimented on and cloned against her will by biomass. And then oh God, Eve is pretty was, much, yeah, that was that awful. That was rough. Oh, <laughs> that was so rough. I yeah, was rough. dying in that part. Like, yeah. my heart broke. Yeah, that, that really felt like the moment where Lemon kind of grows up, kind of becomes yeah. an actor, I guess. Like, up until then... Even even through book two, like she goes through some rough patches, but she's still kind of the sassy, wise cracking mm. sidekick persona for a lot of it, even though people are looking at her more and more in a hero leader type role. I feel like what happens to her in Biomass is, is really what catalyzes her into the character that she ends up becoming. Um, yeah. She has to go through some pretty awful stuff uh, to get where oh, she needs to. She brought so low. Yeah, it's very much a trial yeah. by fire. I, I mm. felt quite bad when I was writing that part because, I, like I say, Lemon's probably my favourite character in the whole series uh, and she goes through a pretty rough patch in this book yeah. set. I think she's I, definitely he, he says my laughing. favourite. Mm. Um, that's why I'm so glad and that's why I think there's such a, when you've done all of that to a character, I was so, so relieved that, you didn't kill Grim because... <laughs> oh, I thought Grim was a goner. I was like, Grim is going to die. Think he was I'm going to oh, cry good. again. I, <laughs> I really did. I, well, I wasn't sure. I thought, I thought there was a chance you might let one of them come through it. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, did you think I was going to kill them both? That'd be rough. Well, I really did. And then I was like, no, maybe it'll just be one. But then which one? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, that's that's the kind of fear that I want to instill. That's, that's the kind of fear that I need as a reader or a viewer or whatever to really yeah. enjoy a show. Like, obviously, nobody wants to watch or read a story where the villains win, mm. um, you know, standing atop a pile of the hero's bodies and laughing mm. maniacally, credits yeah. roll. Like, no, nobody wants to see that, but to enjoy a story, I need to feel like that could be a possibility. Deep mm. down, have this kind of unspoken contract with the storyteller that they're probably not going to do that because, you know, that kind of nihilism is too bleak for most to enjoy. But I no, need but to feel oh, the fear that, that that is a possibility. Uh, that and some it was with those guys. Happen. Yeah, because the stakes high. are so high. Like, I was like, he could do it. He could. He might. Because I remember getting to the end of um, Deviate and just being like, oh, crap. Like, 
Asking for the, that contract that the in contract the contract with Jay that you saw at the beginning of this, you kind of reasonably hope that Lemon and Eve will come to some kind of understanding at the end. Like it still is for me, still up in the air over whether both would survive, but you think they're gonna make it until the end of the trilogy, right? All right. But characters like um, Diesel and Grimm, they're up for grabs. Like, I really didn't know. <laughs> and I was so relieved when when they came through. And they had a really good book in True Life. Uh, yeah. I, I am glad that you were afraid. <laughs> <laughs> that That's, you know, like I say, that, that's what I need uh, when I am being told the story. So that's the kind <laughs> of attention that I try to build into the stories that I write. I need you to be afraid for the characters that you love. Um, oh, I knew Fix was a reading. goner. As soon as oh, like I found out his his power was redempt like sorry what's the what am I what's the word I'm looking for like regeneration regeneration like, I was like oh he can't he can't live because otherwise everyone no one would die because he would just help them he's gonna yes that's, oh. that's actually a very good point yeah you part of your brain off. that was your that part of your brain was active at that point I, it really was I was like he's gone up and oh I love yeah him already. that's quite clever <laughs> it's kind of like playing you know like playing first-person shooter, you always got to kill the healer first. You don't go for the damage dealer, you go for the healer, because if you keep the healer alive, then everyone can stay alive. That's actually a really good philosophy. I hadn't thought about that way. But yes, it's you can true. you got to kill the, kill the heals first. What a Ugh. devastating death that was, though. That and was... I, was, I was so pleased that, um, that you didn't sort of just leave it all, um, you know, like there was a proper funeral and like a, a proper moment yeah and i mean that that's kind of diesel's arc in the third book really like she's just coming to grips with that loss um Mm -hmm. as a character like uh i didn't i didn't have enough time or pages to kind of explore that relationship and and diesel is still kind of a b character but yeah that's the struggle that she has with over the course of that book you know where she assigns the blame um and and coming to the right frame of mind about it at the end like she she kind of displaces a lot of her anger onto uh, Abraham. So, and that, that's kind of a, a oh metaphor. God, Abraham. The... <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap, this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you liked it. It was so good. I do want to talk about Abraham, but just while we're on the, um, the Grimm and Diesel kind of, because they kind of like a bit of a pair. Yeah. Um, when I was, I, I wanted to ask you, like, I, Grim kind of reminded me a bit of you. Did Did you see yourself in Grim? Oh, uh, really? In what way? Uh, just in the way that he claims to have a really black heart. Um, <laughs> are, you say, are you saying I don't? What are you, what are you implying, Sarah? <laughs> I'm, I'm bad no, to the I bone. Think, <laughs> I think you have a mighty heart, Jay, but I don't think it's black. I think it revels in okay. some shadowy places. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, all, every character that an author makes has a part of themselves in there. Um, you, mm. you're, you're kind of drawing on yourself for most of the characters that you create. But it, it wasn't something that I did consciously. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably glad to hear it. Grim, Grim is a cool character and he's a, he's a nice guy. So I'm Grim's glad you best. see me in him rather than me in a character like Gabriel or whatever, or, or Preacher. preacher. Uh, <laughs> oh. But, I mean, there are elements of me in those characters as well that kind of different parts of your personality dialed up or dialed down. Uh, but yeah, Grim, Grim is kind of a protector figure, I guess. He's, he's 
he's a good-hearted guy. So I'm glad you see some parallels there with me. That's, oh, I'll take that I as a compliment. Do. Thank you, Sarah. Um, <laughs> Preacher sounds like, I mean, Preacher seems like he would have been so much fun to write. Yeah, oh, he yeah. was great. And he, he ended up going in very different places that I expected as well. Like, I didn't honestly know that he was going to be a recurring uh, figure in the books. I didn't, you know, there's a question mark on whether he's even alive at the end of book one. But when I kind of stumbled across the idea of taking him and Ezekiel on what is essentially like a buddy road trip. In oh, I was so here for that. I was, so <laughs> I was like, I just want Preacher and Ezekiel buddy cop adventures. Yeah. Well, they just, Forever. Yeah. <laughs> Worried each other, like this three-hour conversations with them about life, the universe, and everything. Yeah, like he—he oh, yeah. he was a really cool way for Ezekiel to kind of question his own worldview and his motivations for doing what he was doing. Because you know, preacher yeah. is kind of straight talker, no, no BS kind of guy who will tell you exactly how it is, regardless of how it makes you feel. Um, mm. But yeah, he was a good <laughs> for a light to, or I guess a mirror to be held up on Ezekiel and make him examine exactly why he was doing the things he was doing because Zeke is a pretty confused character throughout the narrative. Like he, he, in many ways he's, he's a kid, like he's only two years old. He doesn't really understand who he is and what he wants. Um, so yeah, preacher was a, a good foil for that. He's but yeah, such a it, precious it, soul. I <laughs> know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He's Not preacher. Sweet. Obviously, no. no. <laughs> but That's yeah, what, that I, was I one kinda... of the moments where I cried. I thought you killed him, right when he get he's captured again by his brothers and sisters, and like, like everything went black. And I'm like, oh my god, he's dead. You didn't just do that. God, Should it was stressful. Yeah, thinking back to that last, that sort of last movement of True Life, mm. I think, I think I had, I had so many heart attacks. Like, <laughs> I was so. It was really stressful in the best way possible, but like. Oh, that's good. I'm I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, and and so can we take a moment for Abe? Oh. Or Abe. Oh, Abe. Yeah. Did you... to go. That was a look. That was a very moving moment, and it and it allowed for that fantastic moment later where the Brotherhood kind of shows up. Um, yeah. As like the cavalry. Yeah. Um, sure. But, man, like, did you – I know we've discussed at length how you kind of don't plot very far in advance, but at what point during the writing of True Life did you know who was going to make it and who wasn't going to make it? Um, in terms of Abe going, I, I probably knew about halfway because I knew I needed something that would motivate his mother. Um, mm. His mother is just fanatic and, and it's very difficult to break through to people who believe wholly and solely. Uh, in the things they're doing because they're mandated from a higher power. So I knew I needed something, you know, world-breaking to, to make her believe it. Um, so, yeah, the, the targets were on him from kind of the halfway point. But I needed to, I knew I needed to polax somebody in that final sequence because you need the reader to believe that anyone could go. So it's kind of – it's. It's an old trick from the Joss Whedon playbook. Like, oh my god, are you going to talk about Wash? Yeah, talk about Wash. <laughs> like, that's the classic move. Oh, like, that's one of the you, most... you take the sweetest, nicest guy and you just straight up murder him. Oh, like, oh everybody god. watching that show now. On the wind. Yeah, everybody's free game. Like, if you can kill Wash, you can kill anybody. Um, so, killing Abe was kind of the same thought. Like, as soon as you kill this sweet. Nice, good-hearted, probably the 
purest hearted guy out of a lot of them as soon as he gets on the chopping block then you realize that everybody is fair game and maybe nobody's going to come out of this alive so yeah that's one for the weed playbook i mean it was masterfully done but also we were already at that point (laughs) (laughs) but you got to actually pull the trigger like you can't you can't keep shying away like there are enough moments in there where you oh you think they're dead but no they're not uh if you keep doing that over and over again the reader feels a bit cheated yeah. after a while, I think. It, it feels like you're pulling one over them. So, yeah, well, you have actually, to pull trigger a couple of times. You have you gave you gave our people such a great happy ending in a way, like bittersweet, sure. Um, I mean, it is but, sad in the sense that the world is still kind of broken, yes. and, I, and mm. I, di- I didn't want to write a story where everything is fixed by a silver bullet because ultimately the the world is an exploration of where I can see us potentially going in, in terms of, you know, the wastefulness of our society, the way we so frivolously use finite resources, the way that we are hopelessly <laughs> wedded to mm. fossil fuels. Um, if we continue down this path, we will end up in a place, you know, it may, it may not be similar to the world that I built, but it will be just as bad. So I didn't want to pretend like you just wave a magic wand and things will be fixed. At the end of this book, the world is still in a terrible place, but, you know, hopefully I give a sense that there are people working for the betterment of it and maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But yeah, 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 yeah I definitely think it, it, it wouldn't have struck a, it wouldn't have felt right for that world that I built. Yeah, well, it's perfect. But considering everything that comes up to it, I guess that happy ending has to be earned and, and like that's, and hence Abe, I guess. But wow. Yeah. But I mean, everyone kind of loses something of themselves. Like, you know, yeah. I think I think the price that Lemon pays is her innocence. Like, she's just mm. not the girl she was at the start of that story. Um, Eve has to rebuild herself from the ground up in terms of her personality and, and kind of learn who she truly is. Eve, uh, Zeke has to examine, you know, what what he genuinely feels and why. Mm. Uh, whether the whether the things that he felt for Anna were real at all and come to his own genuine personal feelings about Eve. Um, so, yeah, er- everyone kind of goes through a trial by fire. And, and cricket? Yeah, poor cricket. Well, I think we're running out of time, so we'll have to wrap it up, I think. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, so sure. Can we, can, we, can, we, can we just quickly one more thing? Sure. Um, yep. I just want to talk about what happens to Solomon when he's freed of when he's essentially given free will, free will. Yeah. It was so not what I expected. And yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Like what would happen to a mind to be freed like that? And I don't know. I just thought that was, I basically just wanted yeah. to say that plot was really well done. I didn't really have a question attached to it. Oh, cool. I'm <laughs> glad. Yeah. I mean, just an emotion. Uh, yeah. I, I, I guess it's, it's a metaphor for anyone who's kind of living under a set of, under under indoctrination i guess if you build a foundation upon a very specific set of rules and then you have those rules challenged uh or broken in front of you i guess it it kind of deconstructs you as a person and and you know you you have a choice there to kind of rebuild yourself from the ground up like eve does or you kind of fly to pieces like solomon did um and that kind of that kind of is a test of character i guess but uh, yeah, like challenging preconceptions and, and 
people's beliefs in terms of the way the world is or should be is, is one of the themes that I was trying to explore in the book. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it worked. I'm, I'm glad you, you found it interesting. It's, it it's definitely nice did. Good. <laughs> All right, Liam, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop asking questions now. <laughs> I feel like Nick has just like has his hand hovering over the end call button. Just being like, shut up, shut up. <laughs> Stop talking. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we could keep talking about this series and pretty much all of your books forever, um, but we will wrap it up. Um, thanks so much for coming, or well, not coming, but joining us on the call. Um, yeah, to chat absolutely. About True life. Thanks this for having me. This has been great. It's, it's always awesome to talk to you guys, and thanks so much for the support that you give my books and all Australian authors. Um, you guys do amazing things, so please keep it up. We love you. Oh, it's just a, it's. I can hardly believe it's a job sometimes. It's just so much fun. <laughs> well, thank Alrighty. you for all you do. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Nick. Um, thank you. <sighs> okay, so if oh. you're listening at home... <laughs> I know, we're both gone all blushy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, back on track. Uh, thanks for listening at home, everyone. Um, if you're interested, you can buy a copy of True Life from booktopia.com.au or your local bookstore. And thanks again for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.